So I think we're at early days yet, but at the same time, personally, I think it would be a disaster if I retire before I'm made redundant. This is the second episode of the Big Picture Medicine podcast, and I'm Mustafa. Today we're speaking to Professor Neil Sabir, who's a professor of pathology at the Great Ormond Street Hospital, GOSH, which is the country's leading children's research hospital. He's also their chief research information officer, and he's the director of the Digital Research Informatics and Virtual Environment Unit there. Much of his 500 peer-reviewed papers focus on paediatric pathology. However, he's recently turned his focus towards digital healthcare, in particular how we can use technology to improve children's health. It's a really fascinating conversation. We talk about the future of pathology and paediatrics in the context of AI, how he partnered with Microsoft to create the GOSH in Minecraft, and I finish off by asking him for his advice on academic success and getting published. Hope you enjoy. So you've got quite an interesting story, and you've recently changed your focus more towards digital health, and I wanted to ask what inspired that shift in focus. Yeah, I guess it's a couple of things. So um, I should fess up front I suppose I've always been quite nerdy and into computers so right from kind of starting a medical school I was kind of into tinkering and building computers and things and lots of my research although it's been in other clinical areas has been quite data heavy so back in the 90s I was doing some stuff with something called the Mary's maternity information system which was a really old DOS-based system which was one of the first in the country where you could collect information about deliveries and running analyses on that, I used to have to come in at, in the evening, set up some scripts, run them overnight, come back the next morning, get a printout off to see what the, what they'd run, and I get like error line three or something, and have to change the script and then wait till the next evening. So I'd always, although I've been doing other things, I've always been kind of interested in the space. And about five years ago here, we started looking at all of our uh, IT infrastructure and the capabilities for that. And they wanted someone who uh, could be involved around how we maximize the use of data for research. So it fitted perfectly with my interests. And that's how I got into the kind of the role of chief research information officer. So being the chief research information officer in the country's leading children's research hospital, you must have a good idea of what the future of digital technology looks like in pediatrics. Yeah, so I guess there's a couple of things. So firstly, as I sort of mentioned before, I don't think there are very specific things with paediatrics, but I do think in children's health, there are some areas that are, some opportunities that are different. So one of those, for example, is uptake of the tech. So the average age of our patients is sort of five years old, their parents are in their 20s. So if you want to do something with robots or with apps or whatever, our patients will just use them. They're happy to do it. Doing that in a elderly care population is very different in terms of the uptake thing. So I think there are some advantages for pediatrics. But in general, there are kind of a few big chunks of things that are that, that go across the whole spectrum. One of those chunks is how do you use AI analytics data to make better decisions about the hospital? And that's been really the holy grail of this space for a long time, and no one's cracked it yet. So if you take the example of another industry and you look at an airline industry, they get huge amounts of data from every flight of every single thing that happens in the engines. And then they can analyze those at the end. They can have a digital twin of the engines. They can say, what if we made this, this valve slightly bigger, etc." In theory, 
you could do the same thing for a health system and a hospital. You could say, what if we had an extra CT scanner? What would be the impact of that? So the waiting time for CT would go down, but would then you just have patients who have had a CT, but they're now stacking up waiting for their blood test or whatever it happens to be. The difficulty in healthcare at the moment is we are not capturing the information in the right digital format to be able to do that. So that's one big chunk and lots of people are interested in that. And that is something we can learn from other industries. But more specific to healthcare, I think there is there are two big areas. One is clinical decision support. So that is how do you develop a tool that helps you as a doctor make a better decision about how to manage an individual patient? And that could be an alert, it could be a, a, a software that reads millions of, uh, of published articles and summarizes them for you. There's all sorts of things that could be. And then the third group really is what I would put into the category of kind of patient decision support. So how do you start to use apps and other digital tools to help patients manage their own care and nudge them to do the right thing. So those are really three big kind of chunks that really sit across everything. And each of those you can then split up into lots and lots of other areas. So from collecting this data and having these decision support tools on both ends, how do you see paediatric care changing in, say, 10 years' time? Yeah, so I think the the huge thing that's going to have an impact, I think the impact will be seen much more from specialist hospitals rather than primary care or general to start with, is at the moment, patients have to come to see us just to basically see a doctor. That's complete madness because someone has to look after their other children, the whole family has to come down. It's not like even just with a patient, when your child is coming to hospital, you have to have people with them, etc. So it's a really inefficient way of doing things. It also means that Specialist hospitals like GOSH are quite limited in how many patients they can see with a condition because there's a physical issue around travel. One of the first things that I think is going to happen, it will be this kind of, for want of a better word, because it's been used in other industries, kind of democratization of specialist care. So if you could see people with virtual consultations, you can do things much quicker. There is no possible reason why, if I need to look into your ear, if you had an otoscope with a digital camera on the end of it, I should be able to see that in 4K on my screen. That's equally good, if not better, than me peering into your ear myself, because I can also now have a capture of that and I can record it. So you can then start to build clever things on top. So one thing will definitely be around how care is delivered, so a kind of remote consultation thing. And the other massive thing that's going to change everything quickly is going to be data from sensors. Now, that could be home monitoring data post-operatively. It could be around activity data. It could be around ECG monitoring. It could be all sorts of things. That will have a huge impact across all of medicine, but it raises lots of questions about where will that data go? What are the standards for that kind of data? How do you authenticate? Is it okay to make a decision on data where you're not sure that it necessarily is from the patient who they say it's from? There's all sorts of things that are then raised. And from a, from a doctor's perspective, whose job is this going to be? Because if suddenly all this data is coming into the hospital. Someone's got to make a decision. And the question is then, everyone flippantly says, oh, we'll have an algorithm that will make the decision. Well, that's fine. But whose job is it then to make sure the algorithm is doing what 
it should be doing. So I think those are going to be the two really quite tangible things that are going to change in the next 10 years. You will have seen all the fanfare around AI replacing pathologists in the media and in academia. What do you see as the future of pathology and do you think all this fanfare is fair? So I think we're early days yet, but at the same time, personally, I think it would be a disaster if I retire before I'm made redundant. Because the whole point of everything we're trying to do in medicine is to make it better. So if you can have a system that performs better for a specific task, you would be mad not to want that system. So the idea that you take some humans, you show them lots of pictures, happens to be pictures of things, tissue under a microscope, over many years, you keep showing them pictures. And you say, do you recognize what this is? Do you recognize what this is? Until they can say, yeah, I know what this is now. That can't be the optimal system for doing this. So deep learning systems, AI for pattern recognition, we know are better than humans in general. So absolutely, we have to replace diagnostic radiologists and diagnostic pathologists for many, many tasks because the systems absolutely will be better. And it's not only that they'll be better, it's that you remove now the limit, you democratize things, as I said. So instead of having certain cases of breast cancer looked at by the top two breast cancer pathologists in the world, because they can't possibly look at all of them, if you have a system that can do what they do, everyone in the world can have, their, can have that level of expertise. And same for radiology, et cetera. And actually same for lots of other bits of medicine. For example, heart sounds and ECG. It's completely bonkers that you teach medical students what a heart sound sounds like and say, listen with this pipe. When, you know, Shazam can do it for songs. Why can't we do that? Well, we could if everyone was actually recording the heart sounds and annotating them. So it will absolutely change. What is likely to happen is not that you won't have radiologists or you won't have pathologists, but the, their role will massively change. And actually, the role of lots of doctors are going to massively change. And I think what's happening is people recognize that for radiologists and pathologists, they're probably the first ones who are going to have the change. But if you are a cardiologist or a neurologist and you think it's not going to affect you, you're mad because it's going to change for everyone, but just in different ways. So what will happen, for example, is for a pathologist, the task of looking at a slide under the microscope, screening it and making a diagnosis, for example, for specific conditions, could be taken over by something else. And probably the first way that will happen will not be by diagnosing it, but it will be by saying, okay, we know this is prostate cancer. There's now a quite sort of dreary process the pathologist now has to go through of saying how are we going to score this so how do we grade it and how do we count all of the various things you need well actually you can get a system that can automate those kind of things so lots of tasks will be taken out and they'll be done separately the question then would be what are the tasks that remain so for a pathologist for example the clinical path pathological interpretation still remains because just knowing what's on the image doesn't tell you the context of the patient. To be fair, that probably changed over time as well, but for the moment. And just at a very 
practical level, if someone has a tumour resected, that tumour still needs to be dissected, the blocks still need to be taken, that still needs, it's the equivalent of a surgeon. So those things are going to take much longer. So I think the question really for, if I was a medical student now, is not, it's, it's not whether doctors will be replaced, it's will medicine be practised in the way it is now in 20, 30 years' time? Unequivocally, no. So the question really is, in whatever specialty you're going into, what tasks are you not likely to be having to do in the future? And therefore, if someone removes all those tasks from you, what's your point? So where do you add value? And I think that's what's going to change. Yeah, so a change in the role rather than a complete replacement of pathologists. Um, so from the current literature in AI's use in pathology, it seems as if we're currently using it for specific tasks rather than a complete solution. I was just curious about your overall view of the current literature and where we're at. Yeah, so I think that we're going in the right direction. So if you if you just take the concept that you can using various deep learning methods, you can teach computer systems to recognize things in images. doesn't matter whether it's medicine or not is irrelevant. You can teach an image. Where that image comes from starts to become a bit less relevant. So it could be that it's a digital photograph that you've taken of a wound. It could be for facial dysmorphology. It could be for all sorts of other things that we do visually in, in medicine. The easiest way to start has been imaging. And that's because imaging is already fully digitized. And to some extent, imaging is easy because it's generally grayscale. So the image files are not enormous. And also, most types of imaging have orientation. So a chest x-ray, you know how a chest x-ray is taken. It has left, right, up, down, which means it's relatively simple to teach a system because up is always up. One of the first problems you get with pathology is you insert lots of circumstances. You don't have that. So there's an orientation issue of what is actually the tissue that you're looking at. So for a human, if there's a lump of blood clot on the slide next to a biopsy, the human doesn't even consciously think, I won't look at the blood clot because it's just some blood clot. But actually for a computer system, they have to, it has to learn that on this slide that's been labeled as cancer, this thing is completely irrelevant. So there is a large part for the teaching process where we are stuck at the moment because the slides need annotating. So most of the systems that work well work because you have essentially some kind of usually initially supervised learning. So you would annotate loads of slides, you would give them to the system, the system then goes, ah, now I know what epithelium looks like, now I know this bit is cancer, and it can then learn to extract features. If you just give a slide, is much, much harder. So the problem is that firstly, pathology is not fully digitized in most hospitals. Secondly, when it is digitized, the f it's full color. And because of the magnification, the file sizes are huge. So a whole slide image is gigabytes in size compared to kilobytes for a, a radiology image. And the third problem is you need annotation. So who would do this annotation? 
you would say to the pathologists, we would like you to spend the next five years annotating all these slides so that we can put you out of a job. That's a hard sell to get people to do. So I think the first thing for all of these technologies is until we start capturing data routinely in an annotated and digitized way, the rest will never be scalable. Yeah, so it's a problem with how the data is being captured and that's something we need to look into. Absolutely. It's a problem with how medicine is practiced. If you're still capturing things on paper, you can't do anything with it. If you're, even if you're capturing things as free text, that's not ideal. If you're still listening to heart sounds with a pipe, analog, and nobody in the world apart from you can hear what you've heard then you can't use it for anything and that's the single biggest problem we so we're really early in the journey yet in medicine and that we haven't even got to the point of saying let's digitize everything and let's standardize the way we digitize everything you've been very successful in creating collaboration between hospitals and industry and one of the things you've been involved with is the collaboration between microsoft and gosh now, what kind of benefits does this collaboration bring to GOSH? Yeah, so I think what we realized quite early on when we were setting up the kind of drive unit was there are a couple of things that need to happen to make this work. The first thing is all the stuff we've discussed. The hospital themselves have to sort themselves out. They have to get their own data in order. But if you now want, you have your data, and you now want some cognitive service, let's say you want a computer vision service, Big tech companies have spent billions building these services. There is no point the NHS now trying to build their own. So you're going to have to start to leverage and partner on the things that are coming from the tech industries. So we were really interested to say, how could we build an infrastructure that would allow you to keep your data secure, but for example, pull down a cognitive service onto that data? So... And, and we scoped around and we've spoken to, to, to various people. And in fact, we have a couple of projects ongoing with Microsoft around, uh, some of them are around their cognitive services, some around analytics, some around a range of things, actually. And I think in addition to that, one of the things that's interesting, just as a proof of principle, is that we were kind of wanting to say, if you're going to link up with these companies, can we start thinking a bit differently and slightly outside of our comfort zone. So one of the examples of the things that we did very early on with Microsoft was, was with Minecraft. So Microsoft bought Mojang, who owned Minecraft. And in fact, now they have a team of people whose only job all day long is building stuff in Minecraft. They're professional Minecraft developers. And one of the issues we have because of patients coming here, so we don't really have any local patients, they come from all over the country, is the worry that they're going to come to Great Ormond Street Hospital. So with Microsoft, they actually came and looked around the hospital, we gave them the plans, they took those photos, and they've actually built a replica, a room-by-room -room replica of the entire Great Ormond Street Hospital in Minecraft which means now that potentially patients can log on and they can go and see their wards. They can look around the hospital. They can go into the operating theatres and the chief executive's office and all the places they can't go in in real life in Minecraft. So that's just one example of something that you kind of think 
it's not really healthcare, but actually it is because if we're going to leverage technology and get people to buy into all of the potential benefits, we have to start thinking outside the way we would normally think this is healthcare and this is not. That's an incredible story. And I've seen Gosh in Minecraft and it's a brick by brick replica. It is indeed. They came and they measured it. It's not quite brick by brick because the size of the, the walls are quite thick in Minecraft, but, uh, and that's good. One of the other things that we still have to resolve, uh, and, and we kind of knew this would happen, but we've done some testing, obviously, with, with patients here. And the main thing they want to do in Minecraft is build and interact with each other. So as soon as you let people build, they can knock things down and therefore... <laughs> There are some issues around some children wanting to knock down the hospital and build fires and all sorts of other things. All part of the fun in Minecraft, but we are going through the process of how we will manage that with hundreds of patients logged on. So it's, we're in early days of how you'll deploy this yet. But this, even that's an interesting issue around throwing up additional things that you might not necessarily have thought of with new tech. But the principle is really, if you forget all the details of that, the principle is... This is potentially now a completely new way to engage with your patients. So imagine if in the Minecraft hospital, you now started to do some bit more clever things. And you say, this is the real hospital, but actually we have a virtual room here about hearts. And in that room is information about congenital heart disease or something else. That's a way of giving advice and information to patients that isn't like a patient information leaflet. So I think there are huge opportunities that are kind of untapped at the moment. So there's certainly a huge potential for using games in children to educate and to help them with the whole medical experience. But then there's also the other side, which is trying to reduce screen time in this era. How do you view that conflict between the two? Yeah, so I think it's an interesting point. Um, I, my views on this are that for, for anything of these kind of things we're doing is simply a risk-benefit equation. So if you're doing anything where potentially the benefit outweighs the risk, you should be going ahead and doing it. The other thing is that I think at the moment we're we're still thinking what I would consider still quite old-fashioned. In that, so If you take the Minecraft, for example, even that, we're still saying, okay, here's a screen. But actually, there may be other ways you can interact that are not related to a screen. And there's actually some interesting things that we're trying to do now with augmented reality and mixed reality and some other things around uh, engagement. So, for example, I've got a PhD student at the moment whose project really is around how you help people engage with uh, their disease. And one of the things is their medication. So I don't know if you've seen, there's a few companies now that have wine bottles that you can point your phone at and then a little... Uh, essentially a little avatar comes out of the label and tells you about the wine, etc. So we're trying to do the same thing with kind of cartoon characters for medications. So a child can actually just point their phone, happens to be a phone at the moment, but it could be something else, and you get essentially a living bottle that the bottle itself starts telling you that you haven't taken your medication and this is what it's for. And So I think it's the concept really of... We don't know yet which are the things in tech that are going to work well in medicine and are going to be bad. And we don't know yet which are the groups where each of those are going to work well. But that whole process of how do you evaluate this 
is a really important process. And it's a whole new branch of medical research, which is how do you do this properly so that the level of evidence you get is enough to make a proper clinical decision. So your partnership with Microsoft seems to have been successful, but there are some other examples of hospital and industry which haven't gone as well. So there was a scandal a few years ago with the Royal Free and Deep Mind partnership. So the question is, how can you make sure that these types of partnerships are successful and avoid these types of scandals? Yeah, so I think one of the things that's clearly happened over the last couple of years is everyone is much more cognizant now of the risks and the uses of data. So everyone that I speak to now for any kind of partnership is looking at putting arrangements, partnership arrangements, data sharing arrangements, commercial arrangements up front, which I don't think, I don't know the details of the, the, the Royal Free, uh, but may not have happened early on. So I think everyone is just much more aware of the issues. And there's also guidance now from NHSX, which wasn't around previously. Uh, so so the, uh, we're, we're much further ahead than we were a few years ago. The more tricky point generally is that if the NHS wants to work with commercial partners, which I think it has to, in not for everything, but for certain areas, there has to be benefit for the NHS and there has to be benefit for the commercial partner. If there's no benefit for the commercial partner, they just won't do it. So we have to kind of work out getting comfortable. It's okay for a commercial partner to benefit so long as the NHS and patients also benefit. And now that discussion is being had a bit more frankly, whereas I think a few years ago that wasn't the case. So one of the things actually that NHSX is trying to set up is this what they're calling a national centre of excellence, but it's around providing advice to NHS organisations specifically regarding this. Because the difficulty at the moment is no NHS organisation has any skills in this space. It's not something that they did before. So there isn't someone who's a brilliant lawyer working in your NHS trust who knows all about commercial and IP arrangements because there isn't they, that wasn't what the NHS did. But it's required now. So rather than each trust doing that, it makes much more sense for the NHS to come up with a framework of doing that. And I think that's one of the things that will be developed in the next year or so that should help to make this much easier. Do you think medical students should be learning how to code? And I ask this because there's been a move towards several code-free solutions. So you can build a website with Squarespace and, gosh, have a code-free data analytics tool as well. So do you think it's worth nowadays spending the time to learn how to code? So my personal view on this is, unless it's an interest and hobby of yours, no. But I think what you should be learning is the principles of coding. I think you should be learning about data. I think you should be learning the principles of data science. You should be learning how to evaluate tech. You should be learning about the, the, the requirements, the hardware requirements of technology. So all those things are super important because if I just need someone to code something, it's actually very inefficient for me to get someone who's trained as a doctor to spend time coding. I can get many people who are better than you and cheaper than you to do the code. 
the hard bit is to know what should be coded <laughs> not actually writing the, the code i don't want to make that sound flippant writing the code itself may also be hard but is a different skill set that other people have so for doctors and medical students the main thing that you can add is not the coding itself but is being able to understand enough to speak to the coders so for me the key thing in clinical informatics is being able to speak the language of clinicians understand about medical research but also speak the language of technologists and computer scientists who can code so that the computer scientists when they speak to you don't think you're an idiot who doesn't understand anything about python but similarly the doctors don't think you don't understand anything about their healthcare problems and it's that middle space that's the sweet spot for doctors yeah so understanding the principles and the big picture rather than actually doing the coding itself so my last question was, you've clearly had a lot of success in academia and in digital technology. And have there been any habits, books or ways of thinking that have helped you along the way? I think the single biggest tip was something that when, so when I did my, um, my thesis, I actually did it at, at King's with someone called Kipros Nikolaides, who's professor of fetal medicine there. And I think one of the things that he said to me at that stage is probably the thing that stuck with me and been the most useful, which was that every time we met, he would get like a blank piece of paper and say, so tell me what you've actually produced. And you suddenly realize that when you're in your career, nobody cares that you tried really hard. Nobody cares that you worked hard and you're up all night. What matters is where's the publication where's the presentation where's the grant application where's the actual demo of the software you can give and too many people i see spend a lot of time but they never quite finish anything so if you're writing a paper and you get it 95 percent finished it's the same as zero because you either it's either published or it's not published the fact that you tried really hard and you stayed up all night and you did these things, if it doesn't get published, you didn't do it. And it's that thing for me. So if whatever you're doing, it by, try and make it much more binary. What is the intention of this thing you're doing? Until that's finished, delivered, done, you haven't done anything. And that is the single biggest thing. So I think it's pushing people to actually finish everything. And that it's often an, an extra 20% of effort that people don't do to go from having nothing to show for it at the end to having lots to show for it. So that would be my biggest tip. But loads of things on this. This is, this is a different area. I hope you liked that episode and make sure you subscribe if you did. If you have any thoughts or feedback, the best way to get in touch is on Twitter at Mustafa Sultan. That's M-U-S-T-A-F-A-S-U-L-T-A-N. Links to everything mentioned can be found in the show notes. Thank you. <laughs>